God, that that song is fantastic. There is no other name by which we can be saved but yours. You are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you. This is eternal life that we believe in the one that God sent, his only begotten Son. God, each one of us need to hear that, whether whether we're secure in you and we know that you've redeemed us, or whether we're in a place, God, where it's kind of foggy and we don't know if we're yours or we're not yours, or even if we're fighting you, God, every one of us need to know that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but yours. Father God, I would pray this morning that you would make that ever so clear to us. That there is, in this next coming year and years to come, there's but one real priority. And that's that we we see ourselves reconciled to you. God, would you call each one of us to a deeper place with you this morning? God, I pray that you would protect your word. God, I pray that the message that you have for us this morning would be clear. And God, that your word would transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dino was kind of kidding. It may take till midnight. But we're going to get through chapter 20 this morning. My uh, my Voice of the Martyrs magazine came in this week. And in January, uh, they put out a, a special piece of Voice of the Martyrs. They, they send out a, a map of the persecuted church in places where the uh, there's... there's um, just violence toward the church, there's countries that are closed, there's all these different things, and they, they go through and list them all in a magazine and tell you how to pray for these different countries. And, and in the magazine itself, I was, I was struck by this one guy that uh, every one of these, every one of these magazines have numerous real people in them, and their faces are usually blacked out and, and names aren't uh, fully given, but as you read through these, you just, you're, you're encouraged uh, to live out your faith in a strong way. And this one guy, Choi Young Hung, Hun, I'm sorry for messing his name up. Uh, he's, a, he's a Chinese, he was a Chinese pastor, but what he did, his ministry was really helping the North Korean defectors come to Christ. So as they came to Christ in North Korea, they would, they would come across the border and they would need some kind of support and, and somehow get into the church. And Well, this guy went on the Chinese police's uh, top ten list, because he was just helping these guys right and left, and he was part of sending brochures over the border with these balloons so they would drop into these different towns and people could get the gospel and they'd get saved. And so people like this are bad. It's a picture of him. If you give Voice of the Martyrs, you may have you probably read this one. Uh, this guy is bad news. He uh, He's evil and he's um, he's a problem and he needs to be thrown in prison. And so... Eventually, they found him. He was on a train. The police surrounded the whole train and arrested every single person on the train. This is in, in 2003. It, it goes through and tells a little bit about his story and says, you know, he knew that one day they would catch up with him. There's just no way you can be that forward about what you're doing and them not eventually find you. 
So 2003, it came about. They surrounded the whole train. There were 200 people on the train. They arrested them all. Hey, why not? We'll get him. And so he finally just raised his hand and said, look, people, you're looking for me. Here I am. So they took him and they throw him in jail. And the story goes on to say, this is what they did to this brother. Initially, they just beat him up a little bit and said, you know what? We want to know all the contacts between North Korea and here. And he wouldn't tell them. He said, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm doing exactly what God's called me to do. It's almost like you, those in the military that, are, that were... Um, prisoners of war and you start asking all those questions and here's your answer this is me and this is my number that's it well that's what this guy says I'm a believer and this is what I do so they started torturing him he still wouldn't give in so they started thinking you know what we have a better way to do this and so they started injecting him with these really weird drugs that made his mind all twist up funny and hallucinogens and all these things and and somehow, the voice of the martyrs people found out about this guy. So somebody that was on his team, the North Korean defector team, told the voice of the martyrs about this. And they made this announcement out in 2006. And people started writing all these letters, and it exposed what these guys were doing in this Chinese prison. And so they had to let him go. When he came home... Everybody told him, you really need to check your in, yourself in for psycho, or psychiatric evaluation because the drugs, you've been on them so long now that they've twisted your mind up. And he didn't do it, but he's never totally recovered. But he did take time and he just said, you know, I'm going to take, the, instead of going there, I'm going to take time to, to pray and just seek the Lord and, and hope that God would heal me. And in the end... The story, this story, has a great ending. Because God did heal him. He did recover from the drugs after a couple of years. And in 2009, he actually is on staff working with the Voice of the Martyrs and has now more freedom to move in and out of these places than he did before. But I read that and I say, okay, that was a long three years. Now we think of three years, you know, you read history and three years really isn't. Could you imagine being beaten, tortured, and shot up every day for three years, sitting in a dark dungeon? This is 2006. This isn't like, this isn't like back in the 1400s. This is today. And I read these things and I say, God, okay, and then I turn the page. And the next story doesn't end so well. Yeah, all those people actually did get killed and they locked him in the building and they burned the whole thing and, and so all those pastors ended up dying. And I said, God, where, wait a minute. And so as I read this, I just get, I, I struggle with it sometimes. And then, of course, as God would have it, he says, Chris, you get to preach on Genesis 20. And I don't know if you've ever done, yes, I'm sure you've done this. You read the word... And something in God's word finds itself perpendicular to the way you think. And you know it because he just sent you the Voice of the Martyrs magazine and you're struggling with, God, why didn't you, why didn't you fix that? Why did, these are pastors. These are people that have just, they're pouring their life out to make sure the gospel gets from here to here in these places that I don't even know I would go. Not even in camo. I just, that, or any other way. I just wouldn't... That, that place, that's scary. You, you know, as, a, as an American, I think I can just walk over there on the street and say, Hey, do you know Jesus? 
I don't even understand that kind of persecution. I don't even understand where you got to kind of go sliding. I'm reading this book called Safely Home. What a fantastic book. Talking about the underground church. And many of you have read it from Randy Alcorn. If you haven't read it, you should. Um, but it just goes off and it kind of talks about the underground church in China and some of the things they have to go through. We don't. We just don't understand that. We don't understand that. I, I get a little upset when I, when I go into a coffee shop and somebody says something about God or uses the Lord's name in vain and, and I might have to say something. And I get a little uncomfortable about that, right? I don't even understand this kind of thing. And so as I, as I read this in chapter 20, as we're going to get to, I found myself very perpendicular to God's will here. And when that happens, I, I, right away, I have to admit it, God has exposed in my heart that if you were to follow me around in my pocket, I have a wrong view of God. And so this is just kind of been real heavy on me this whole week and, and my wife always tells me don't go preaching when you're still processing and, and it's a joke I'm still processing so when I said midnight I'm not kidding so let's get into this Genesis chapter 20 so here we are 19 we finished up 19 kind of an odd passage with Lot and his daughters last week and and the beginning of 19 was Abraham or excuse me Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and, and God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? And one of the questions I continually heard from people was, you know, why didn't Lot just go find Abraham? I mean, why did he... He runs off to this town, and then after he leaves this town, he runs off to the mountains when he has Abraham sitting right over there. Why didn't he just go back? He's lost everything anyway. I don't have an answer to that question. But I do know this. Abraham didn't know either. Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, and there's nothing that tells us that Abraham didn't know Lot didn't go down with it. Okay? So here we are in chapter 20, and it says, the first two verses here, we're going to go through this, but I'm going to take it in sections. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Geb, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife, she is said of his wife, excuse me, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took her. So the first question, as I read these things, I always have to ask the question, okay, why? Why did he move? Why did he leave where he was, perfectly fine place, and move down south to Gerar? Why did he do that? Well, he's nomadic. He's kind of semi-nomadic anyway. And so it doesn't, it's not so much of a surprise. Maybe his sheep ate up all the grass, and it was time to move. He'd been there for a while, but, you know, I I don't think that's true because he'd been there for quite a while, and my guess is he had a way to move his sheep around to make sure the grass was okay. So I wasn't good with that answer. And, And then you have this whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing that just happened. And a number of the commentators, and I couldn't land here with them, but... Uh, they make a good point because this entire section has this flavor of restoring Abraham. And you'll see it as we go through here that Abraham seems to do everything wrong, but God seems to be doing everything to restore him back to where he was. And you'll see that flavor all the way through here. And so we have this Sodom and Gomorrah thing that just happened just before. And if we, and last week we took and looked at Lot from beginning to end because Lot ended after last week. And when we look at Lot's life, we see Abraham nonstop doing everything he can for Lot. 
right? Lot's father dies. Abraham kind of takes him on. Terah, Abraham's father, takes Lot and takes Abraham with him when he starts heading to Canaan. And then after Abraham's father died, Lot takes him and takes him the rest of the way. And then when things get a little awkward between their shepherds, Abraham says, pick. What do you want? He does everything he can for Abraham. And then after that, he goes to Sodom and this Catalaomer comes and conquers Sodom and takes Lot and runs off and he straps on his armor and he chases him down and he gets Lot back. This is no chicken. Right? Abraham's a stud. So he goes and he essentially becomes the, the strongest man on the planet. The known He is the mighty man right now. That is Abraham. But he's doing it for Lot every time. And then... These angels come and we said the incarnate son is standing there and God, and Abraham starts to plead with him and bargain with him. For, for 50 righteous, will you still? You know what Abraham's thinking. He says, my nephew Lot is there. My, my nephew is living in Sodom. God, for 40, for, for 10? God says, we're done. And he goes. Abraham is always put up for Lot. Always. And now Sodom, it's gone. He looks over the edge, it's nothing but smoke. Abraham does not know that God rescued rescued Lot. And Lot didn't come find him. And so everything kind of fractures there. And so is it possible that, that Abraham is shaken by that? And that is, that's for you to think about. I can't land there because it doesn't tell us that that's why. It just says, for some reason, after that, he took up everything and he went and submitted his life, essentially, to a pagan king down in Gerar. That's what it says. After that, he then took his stuff and he moved down to this place and he submitted himself to a pagan king right afterward. And then the 12 words that... These 12 words just kind of add this odd flavor to the whole passage. It says, she said, or he said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech sent for her and took her. Now, in case we, we need to put some context around this just to make sure we understand how serious this is. Okay, not too long ago. God told Abraham, oh yeah, in one year, within one year, I'm going to come back here and she will have a son, even though she's 90 years old. Your son is the one that's going to be the promise, not the son of the slave woman, your son, not your heir from this other person, no, your son, Isaac, this person is going to be your heir and he's going to be this, this promise And Abraham goes to the king and says, nope, she's my sister. Now, in case we put Abraham a little too high on this pedestal, when we saw Lot and Lot threw his daughters out into the mob and said, oh, take my daughters, we went, ah, you evil dog, weasel. That's what we called him. Okay, that's what I called him. I don't know what you called him. I called him a weasel. He gave his daughters to this mob and we said, that's just morally unclean. That's just wrong. But we kind of read over the top of this because in chapter 12, he did it once before too. And, you know, he just said, hey, it's just my sister. And in fact, he goes off and tells her, it really is his sister, kind of. 
But this whole promise that God has made, Abraham is just standing right in the way of. And says, oh, take her. That's pretty much what he's saying, because in the ancient days, that's what kings did. To, to prove their virility, they build harems. And if there's an available woman, they take her. Now, also, we have to, we can't miss this. Either Abraham, either Sarah is an absolutely, she has that youth gene and she's just gorgeous. The lady's 90 years old. Okay, let's not forget that. This lady is 90 years old and, and, and Abraham's thinking, oh, because of you, they're gonna kill me. <laughs> Cause you're fine. Now, ladies, you just need to elbow your husband and make sure as you get to be 90 years old, he's still saying, oh, I don't know, you're a beautiful thing. And the, Okay, that's a side note. But, but she was 90 years old. And he's still saying, hey, say, say you're my sister. And so she does. But why? Why does he do this? We get the explanation. We're going to kind of jump down a little bit. He says, when, when the king actually asked him, why did you do these things that, that shouldn't be done? Why, why did you do this to us and bring on this great sin unto our nation? Abraham says this in verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father. <laughs> not, excuse me, the ha 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 is not in there. Though not a daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, you say of me, He is my brother. So let's jump into this first place, because this is the first one, the first piece of the passage that just kind of shook me up a little bit. It says, I looked at you and there's no fear of God in this place. And so as I was reading about that, he uses the word Elohim, but the way the structure of the sentence goes, he's actually saying there's no morality here. He's not somehow proclaiming God to these people. He's just tokenly saying, y'all don't do good here. There's no morality here, and because of that, I fear for my life, because you'll probably kill me, because why wouldn't you, and take my wife? And so, instead, I'm going to just prostitute her to you, since you're not moral. Did you catch that? Yeah. yeah. He said, you're immoral, and I'm going to prostitute my wife to you, but you're immoral. And when I read that, I just kind of sat back and pulled my hair out for a minute. Because I thought, well, how often do we do this? So as I started reading, I came up on this article about uh, the danger in America of having a moral gospel preached in churches. And as I read this, it just got worse and worse and worse on me because this is so true. In the American church, we often judge your level of spirituality by how you perform in this certain criteria in church. How good you look. And and listen to this. This one author says, he's talking about Abraham in this situation. While his recent experience in Sodom didn't help, this is often the case for many believers who don't know what to do with the culture and assume that is somehow, excuse me, and assume that somehow more, those people are more evil than they are. They are often surprised to find out that the heathens are more gracious and moral than they are. 
It is a false understanding of the gospel to think that those people out there are any worse or different than us. This is the result of the moralistic gospel often proclaimed from our pulpits, but has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I read that, I thought, is that really true? When there's there's often a fear that well, let me tell you a story first. When I, a number of years ago, when I was working at Sun, one of my bosses they invited us over to dinner, and and these people were just filthy rich. They had been acquired, they got all this money, and and they're just bad. They were, in fact, they were antagonistic toward the gospel. They'd laugh at you and tell Christian jokes and make. They were just disgusting. And. And when they invited us over, we started. T- we had dinner. And we were talking about telling kids about money. And I figured for sure I got one up on them morally here because I'm a Christian, right? I'm generous. I'm loving, caring. And they told me that from from the time their kids were little, they had always taught their children to take ten percent of anything they get and give it to charity. And that was just a practice in their house all the time. And these people were wealthy. And as I sat and listened, shame just kind of came over my face because I thought, I don't teach my kids that. I'm not that generous. These people that don't even know the Lord are actually gooder, if I can use that phrase, than I am in certain places. And and one of the researches I did a while back about why teenagers leave the church after they, they grow up, They leave home and they totally leave the church. Mom and dad may have been solid believers, but the kids just said, I'm done with this. One of the reasons that they noted was they find out that you've been lying to them all along. That those people out there are just bad. They're all just bad and they're going to eat you. It's kind of like the Japanese telling all their... their, uh, People during World War II, if the Americans come, they're just going to eat you. Right? And in a way, we tell our kids that that's the way the world is. That they're, And when they get out there, they find out that some of these people are really nice. And they're caring, they're loving, they're giving, they're great humanists. I call them Barnes & Noble people. I mean, they're just... They're just delightful people. And they care about humanity, they care about their neighbors. And the kids go, wait a minute... Wait a minute. They're just as good as the people. And so we have to be careful. This isn't the message, by the way. This is a side note. That when we walk into places, this, this section right here about the moral gospel and what we preach, we, talk, we said last week, God doesn't save the morally shiny. And as we find out soon, Abimelech is still under condemnation. His moral correctness here doesn't save him either. But we have to be careful. And I, I struggle even saying that because in, in essence, there's a place where we are sanctified. And as I, and this is my processing. My wife is over there going, he's processing. I can already tell. When, when we look at ourselves morally, we need to look at ourselves this way. We come to Christ and God has us in the palm of his hand. And as he sanctifies us, he, he might be moving us to be more like Christ and more like Christ and more like Christ. And when we look down, 
We see his hand and we're thankful that God is sanctifying us. We're thankful that God is making us into the person that he's making us into be. Because we are starting to look more like Christ and we're just invigorated by that because that's the, that's the hope of a Christian that, that we just slowly start to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. But what happens every now and then is we crawl over to the edge and we look over and we look how far above the rest of the ground we are. And we go, huh, I'm doing pretty good. And we forget that it's God's hand that's actually moving us there. Now, at the same time, the Bible is perfectly clear that we're to experience God and to chase after grace and to find transformation and to seek him. And, and in that, we're sanctified. That there's no place for us just to sit on the couch, fill ourselves with worldliness and watch ourselves get sanctified. And so there's this, these pieces that need to play together. But at any time when you look over the edge of God's hand and see how much better you are than the rest of the world, just remember that it's not you that got you there. Because the word is perfectly clear that none of us seek after God, not one. Nobody seeks after God. And the very thought that you are being sanctified means God is carrying you there. And so when you see yourself being sanctified, you go, well, thanks, God. You expose that one to me. Even this week as I read this passage and we get to the place that really messed up my head and I saw that I was, my heart was exposed that I don't believe God here. And I say, God, thank you, because I know through this you're going to sanctify me. You're going to make me more like Christ as I get to the other side of this. I know that's going to be true. But in no place do I have a a place to stand back and say, and the rest of everybody else hadn't got there. (laughs) That's not it. That's the moral gospel. We have to be careful of that. Okay, we're moving on. That was a a one-minute piece there. All right, so we move on to verse 3. So right now we have Abraham, regardless of all of this, Abraham has still said, he lied and said his wife was actually his sister and the king took her. Okay? And then it goes to this. But God came to Abimelech, so the king took her. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. If there wasn't fear in the land before of God, there is now. You are a dead man because of the woman you have taken. She is another man's wife. Notice he doesn't mention Abraham at all here. It doesn't matter. You, my friend, are an adulterer and you are a dead man. Verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her and he said, he starts bargaining. He said, wait a minute, Lord, um, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart. I have built my hair. In the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. No sooner did Abraham, or did did Abimelech take Sarah, things with Abimelech's virility start going bad. And God says to him, you're a dead man. Why? Now this is the place I found myself kind of perpendicular. And 
Well, let's just go into it. So, the passage, the phrase there that that shakes me up the most is God telling Abimelech, Oh, yeah, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. Note that what he said was, you built a harem of multiple women out of the integrity of your heart. Let's not miss that piece. But then he said, I kept you from sinning against me. You didn't do anything. It wasn't that you didn't go into her, not because you didn't want to. I kept you from doing that. And so right away I have to ask, I ask the question why a lot. Because the question why oftentimes exposes God's character to you. When you say, why did God do that? Why did God do that? And then you search through the scripture and you look for why God does certain things. And it, it, last week we talked about God imprinting his face in your mind. Okay, that's, that's what that question does for me. So why did God do that? And, and I say, well, I think, is it possibly because Sarah was special? That, that God kept Abimelech from sinning against him in this way and messing her up because right, she was Abraham's wife. She was a very important part of the, this Abrahamic covenant. I mean, he had all this plan. He, I mean, he was probably sitting there watching the Bronco game and went, Oh, no, Abimelech could go in and, and mess with Sarah. I've got I to gotta get up and, and get over there and, and take care of this. And, and oddly, that sounds funny, but as I was reading commentaries, a number of these commentaries have that attitude that, that God had to do something. Like somehow this took God by surprise. Like somehow God didn't know he was going to move down there and do this thing. And, and, and like somehow God had to jump to attention to save the covenant. Now that said, in Genesis 15 where God said, you know what? I'm going to go through the sacrifice. Remember when we did the, the covenant piece where he split the, he split the ray, he split all the animals up. And then it got dark and God walked through by himself. And we said that's because God said, you aren't capable of keeping this covenant. I am going to fulfill both parts of it. Well, here's God fulfilling both parts of it. Because Abraham isn't capable of it. And we see God's plan just moving forward. So I jump ahead. Why did he save Sarah? And then all these other people come to mind. Right? A couple of people that come to mind. How about... I wrote a couple of them down here. Daniel. Oh, he's a great one. What about Daniel? Because he spared Daniel. He spared him from the, the furnace, him and his friends, and he spared him again from the lions. That, that was a good one when Nebuchadnezzar tried to throw him into the furnace. And, and then how about like Moses? Moses is a good one, right? All these babies are getting speared like the, the soldiers are coming into the house and... But not Moses. It says Moses was a special child. That's what the Bible says. Put him in a basket, floated down the river. Why, why Moses? Right? And we go on. I mean, there's just all of these, all of these different people. Gideon, he saved Gideon, David, Elijah, when he's standing in front of all the prophets. How many other? I mean, there's just, there's so many others that God saved from men and their sinful desires and their, their sinful actions. And I'm guessing that any one of us can come up with a story of where God intervened in our life or a life of a friend somewhere and saved someone. You read stories in World War II of, of believers being on firing lines and then 
the guns just misfiring and them being let, let go. What? That's a God thing. That many guns don't miss Dean, right? That many guns just don't misfire at once. It's a God save them. Why? Why? Because you can tell where this is going to go next, right? Because there's just as many on the other side. What about... Oh, yeah, here's a good one. We also note that, that God saved David. Right? Saul's chasing him all over the place. But what about Uriah? Uriah the Hittite, the, the guy that David like put on the front lines and had him killed because David wanted his wife. He saved David and let Uriah die. What about him? What about the prophets that Stephen talks about in, in Acts 7 where he says, you've killed and persecuted the prophets, all of them. All these prophets of God that were oracles of God all died? What about them? Where was God protecting them? What about Stephen himself? Is he standing there saying, I see God at the right hand, I see Jesus at the right hand of God, and he's getting pummeled by these rocks and eventually is killed. Where was God in Stephen's life? Why wasn't he saved? Was he not on God's A-team? Was he not special? You, you have this passage. Um, Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to say this. And he goes on and says, you know what? Five times I've, re- re- I've received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. I was stoned three times. I was shipwrecked, spent a night and day in the sea. All of these things. You look at Paul's life and go, you obviously didn't make the A-team. You obviously didn't make it. I mean, God just had you in turmoil your whole Christian life. And when we look at these things, when we look at why did God save Sarah from Abimelech, but why didn't he save my friend from... Or even more, why did he not save me from... Right? How many of us different experiences in life where the sin of someone has deeply affected us? And you say, where was God then? We know people that, that maybe didn't even survive and, and God had to take them home because of this. Because of something someone else did. Where was God then? Why did God save Sarah from that? And so this is where I often find myself not believing God at his word. I say things all the time in hopes that maybe one day I'll wake up and believe them. Like, if, if you try to understand God by looking at the world, this is why we tell you, don't, don't try and judge God by your emotions, by your thoughts, because his ways are so much higher than yours. And oftentimes I say, if, if you try to get a clear picture of God by looking at the world, you've missed it because what you're doing is looking at a perfect God through a broken world. It's like trying to see the stars through air pollution. right? You look up and, oh, I think I see one, but it's kind of hazy. Or you're not getting a clear picture of what that is. And it doesn't matter how high you climb, there's still atmosphere, there's still water, there's still things in your way. You can't get a clear picture of the heavens. 
But if you turn around and you say, I'm going to look at the world based on the truth of God. I'm going to look at problems. I'm going to look at why God saves these. and I'm going to look at this through the truth of God. That all of a sudden, clarity starts to happen. You can make sense of the world by looking at the world through the eyes of God. But you cannot make sense of God by looking at Him through the eyes of the world. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Which is why God has given us His revelation. Which is why when we get to passages like this, we ask the question, why did He save Sarah and not these other people? Because when you do that, right away you have to say, but there there is this thing inside me, this justice, this fairness that just is supposed to happen. And it doesn't seem fair that he saved Sarah, who's me, and he didn't save Stephen, who was the, I mean, he's like one of my heroes. It just doesn't seem fair to me. Until I remember Isaiah where where God says, you know what, my, my ways are much higher than your ways. My thinking is much higher than your thinking. And in the case you think that's trite, God does not think of life of birth to death. God thinks of life as this eternity and He is expecting to redeem you. He desires that you're redeemed and that there's this entire eternal life. Eternal life is this, that you believe in Jesus Christ as only Son. He wants you redeemed in spending time with Him. That's how He thinks of life. That's not trite. That's not a way of putting a little band-aid on my suffering. When you read stories like in Voice of the Martyrs of these people, there is a passion that they understand that one day I'm going to check out of this body, I'm going to check out of this this home, this this sojourning planet, and I'm going to enter into God's presence and He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest for eternity. Tom Harkis used to say, don't look at the dot, look at the... Line, right? Right now we're in this dot and there's so many things that we don't understand and there's sin and there's all of these problems that cause us. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. It's not about this world. Take heart. I've overcome this world. What I'm calling you to is so much greater. And when Jesus says, set your entire hope on the day that Christ will be revealed, that's what he's telling you. This pain and suffering is but for a short time. Your perspective needs to be eternal, not just right here. Why did he save Sarah and not somebody else? In the end, I really can't answer that question specifically. But I do know that God is not capricious. God doesn't just make decisions on a whim because he doesn't know what to do today. I know that God is perfect. He's perfectly loving. He's perfectly knowing. He's all-knowing. And he has a plan, alpha to omega. He has a plan all the way. And when God made a promise... In Isaiah 55, 11, I think it says, My word will never return to me empty. And my word is not the Bible, by the way, in case we're thinking of that exactly. When it says my word became flesh, that's God's will, right? He's given us this written part of his word here that tells us about him and his character and what we need to know about coming to him and and all that. But when it says my word, that means his will will not return to him empty. When it's God's will to redeem mankind... And Isaac was going to be that promise. That's what's going to happen. 
and no Abimelech or no sin of Abraham is going to, goodness gracious, is going to get in the way of that. When the scripture tells us that God works all things together for good for those who love God, and it goes on a little further and says nothing will separate us from the love of God that was given to us in Christ Jesus, that includes you making mistakes. Well, we're going to leave the rest of chapter 20 for you to, to read. Um, it turns out like this. God tells Abimelech, this man is a prophet. Go to him and he will pray for you and you will live. This prophet is the one that just caused all these problems. But it's important to note that Abraham believed God and it was a credit to him as righteousness. We can follow Abimelech through a couple of chapters and Abimelech doesn't change anything. Even after God saying, you're a dead man. There's no fear of God in Abimelech. Abimelech did not repent Abimelech did not believe God at his word outside of doing what he was supposed to do here. Abimelech, though he did the right thing here, was under condemnation. Abraham was not. Put that on your fair meter for a moment. And remember that God does not save the morally shiny. God does not save the person who gives the most money to the United Way. God saves the righteous, those that believe God, and it's imputed to them as righteous. So that's how this ends. Abraham prays for them, they're healed, and he gives a gift to, to kind of make everything better. And Abraham walks out of there, just like in Genesis 12, a very rich man. And you can read this a hundred times, and every time it's going to turn you on your head. Because it just doesn't seem like it should work that way. Because this guy did the right thing, and he's the one asking for forgiveness, and he's the one paying the tribute to Abraham, and it just doesn't fit in that fairness piece. Until you remember at the beginning I said this has this flavor very much like Jesus restoring Peter. This whole passage is God restoring Abraham. All the way through. God says this is my prophet and he'll pray for you. Go to him. Confess this. And he'll pray for you. And he does and God answers his prayer and Abraham is restored. And in the next chapter when we get to chapter 21... Isaac is born. And so God has a plan. He has a plan for each one of us in this. Let's stop there. Lord God, I I thank you for your word. And I just thank you, God, what your word has done to me this week. And Father, I would just pray for, for this body in particular, Lord, that that as they wrestle with your word and as you expose to them thoughts and patterns that that don't align with who you are God that you would give us each strength 
to admit that and then repent. God, that, that your sanctifying power would carry us in our life. God, I want to pray for those here this morning that are still under condemnation. God, that haven't given their lives to you. They know they need to. They don't want to for whatever reason. God, would you save them? God, I just pray that you would call them to yourself and that they would respond. God, don't let them go. God, for the rest of us, Lord, just draw us closer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.